Have you ever had an opportunity present itself that seems too good to be true? On January 31st, 2008, that is exactly where 24-year-old realtor Lindsay Buziak found herself. After receiving a phone call from a mysterious new client, Lindsay unknowingly set in motion a chain of events that just days later would lead to her gruesome murder. Was Lindsay simply a random victim of opportunity, a case of mistaken identity, or might someone have truly had a cold, calculated plot to end her life? With this being one of Canada's most notorious unsolved cases, you will be left to decide for yourself at the end of today's episode. I'm Colby. I'm joined by my two best friends, Laura and Marina, and this is Grim. I'm very excited. All and right. I told you I didn't know this case, but it sort of rang a bell. So now I'm excited to hear um, your grave retelling of it because I know you're about to slay it. Ha. <laughs> oh. There yes. you go. All right. And obviously, this is not the Connecticut mother-daughter case that I had told you guys I would be doing next because I vastly underestimated the amount of time it would take me to read that book. It happens to the best of us. It does. Yeah, like when you sometimes say you're going to pick up a really quick case and then it accidentally becomes a two-parter. Mm-hmm. Definitely not me. Or when you say you're not going to read a book and then, I mean, you don't, <laughs> but you read two books for the case. We have problems. We have such a problem. We have all of the problems. <laughs> but with all of our problems, what I want to do this week is I want to talk about the unsolved murder of Lindsay Buziak, one of Canada's most famous unsolved cases. A Canada? A Canada, indeed. <laughs> I, okay, so I should probably apologize in advance if I mispronounce any locations or anybody's name. I'm doing the best I can. I watch video clips. I have little phonetic pronunciations in my notes. So I apologize in advance if I get something wrong. Let also, us know. We do a lot of reading for these cases. So a lot of times we read things and then mm-hmm. never hear them out loud. So we do our best. So this this is a case that's long fascinated me. Um, I want to say I first heard about it in 2019, probably when Morbid covered it. Um, despite Lindsay's murder occurring in 2008, the police have continued to actively investigate the case, so it has never been considered a cold case, which I found interesting and oddly inspiring that nobody's given up yeah, yet. that is. There is certainly no shortage of information available on this one. Um, there are numerous news outlets that have covered it extensively. There's multiple blogs out there dedicated to getting justice for Lindsay. Two of note that I read were lindsaybuziakmurder.com and murder on D'Souza. That's the street. Com. I read entries on dyingwords.net, which is the website of a retired RCMP homicide detective and forensic coroner, Gary Rogers. I also watched a Dateline episode. I believe it was the one called The Dream Home Murder and several clips from the Dr. Phil show where Lindsay's father was interviewed. But wait, there's more because there's <laughs> never enough information. Um, I found a lot of helpful articles from the Capital Daily, which is a news outlet based in Victoria that prides itself on its proprietary, entertaining and investigative stories and analysis. Ooh. I think it's a fancy way of saying they hire investigative journalists to look into <laughs> shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's exactly what they did in 2019. They hired an investigative journalist to look into this. Um, And they were actually able to start a movement that got previously unreleased documents to be released to the public. And the contents of those documents did shed new light on previously unknown details. So go Capital Daily. Yeah. Thought they deserved a shout out for that. 
What was the what? What did did you say? RCMP. Do you know what that stands Royal for? Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Thank you. I believe it's yes. if, if that's not exactly it, it is close enough. Yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. So without further ado, let's get going. So Lindsay Buziak was born on November second, nineteen eighty three, to parents Jeff and Evelyn Buziak. She had one sibling, a sister named Sarah, who she was very close to. Lindsay lived in Victoria, which is located on Canada's west coast on the southern part of Vancouver Island. It's also the capital of the Canadian province of British Columbia. So for us Americans, think up near Seattle, Washington. It's like diagonal and west from Seattle. It is also where I think they recorded. Have you ever seen that show on Discovery or History Alone? I have not. It is like Survivor on crack. It, It takes people, as you might guess, alone and literally they have to record themselves and drop them on this island to survive and like the person who survives the longest without making an emergency call wins a whole bunch of money and i'm pretty sure it was on vancouver island which is beautiful but incredibly remote that is all i know if that's all the same place yeah that's a huge no thank you from me on that i (laughs) would be like oh wait there's no air fryer on this island where's the cell phone to make the emergency call yeah yep well don't hate on Victoria just yet. Let me tell you a little bit more about the city. It's known as the Garden City. It is beautiful, but incredibly expensive to live in. It is actually Canada's eighth most expensive city. Fun fact. Um, And it contains a large number of historic buildings. It's a popular tourist destination, and it consistently ranks in the top 20 or top 25 cities in the world for quality of life. So I think you get my point. It's a really nice city. Yeah, it is really nice. I went there on a cruise. Beautiful. I took a horse-drawn carriage, too. It was really nice. (gasps) That must have been beautiful. Super pretty. Back in 2008, the average home price was 600,000 Canadian dollars. I have no idea what the conversion rate was between American dollars and Canadian dollars back then. Just for reference right now, one US dollar is equal to $1.31 for Canadian dollars. So every other dollar amount I say for the duration of this episode, it's just going to be in Canadian dollars. But just keep that in the back of your mind if that helps you. Yeah. Okay. All right. So at the time in 2008, aka 2000 and late, as Laura is whispering (laughs) into her mic over here, Lindsay was a 24-year-old real estate agent who had a promising start to her career. You could say that real estate ran in her family. Her father, Jeff Buziak, was, and I believe still is, a commercial real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. Lindsay's friends and family say that her superpower was making friends with everyone, which Mm. is a pretty excellent trait to have if you have a job that depends on building relationships and engaging with clients. Yes. She was definitely a people person. Lindsay was dating a man named Jason Zalo, who is a couple years older than her and also a licensed real estate agent. The two had met back in 2006 in a real estate tutoring course, and they quickly hit it off. Lindsay and Jason lived together in a waterfront condo that his mother, Shirley Zalo, had purchased and furnished for the two of them. I had the address of the condo building, so I looked it up and yeesh, super, (laughs) super nice. The views alone are breathtaking. Oh my gosh. Um, I believe at the time of her murder, Lindsay and Jason had been dating for about a year and a half to two years. I don't know exactly when they moved into the condo together, but that was no small gift. Like Shirley spent well over a million dollars on this condo and its furnishings. Oh my My goodness. Speaking of Shirley Zalo and continuing with the real estate runs in the family theme, she was actually the manager of the Remax Camosun location where Lindsay worked. So Jason's a realtor, Lindsay's a realtor, Lindsay's dad is a realtor, and Jason's mom is a realtor. Mm, Okay. Definitely in the family here. On January 31st, 2008, Lindsay received a phone call from a woman looking to buy a home within 15 to 20 minutes of downtown Victoria. The woman claimed to have been referred to Lindsay through a former client of hers, and she said she urgently needed to find a home, like within three days urgent, because her husband was being transferred to the area for work. 
She was looking for a three-bedroom, three-bath, newer construction with a large master bedroom and a separate area for a housekeeper to stay, and her budget was $1 million. It must be house nice. hunters. <laughs> yes. It must be nice to have so much money that you're like, I absolutely cannot stay at a hotel yeah, really. for yes. even one moment. I yeah. need to have and move into my own home when I come here. Immediately. ASAP. <laughs> so Lindsay told the caller that, you know, she needed to some time to go and pull some properties that met her needs. And they scheduled an appointment for a showing at 530 on Saturday, February 2nd. But at this point, they still hadn't picked the location of the showing. So... Normally, this would be the kind of thing that any realtor would be ecstatic over, but Lindsay thought it was a little bit odd that this woman was calling her on her personal cell phone rather than her professional number. Oh, that is weird. It's weird, but you know what? She shrugged it off and she just made a note to check with her former client to attempt to confirm that, yeah, the caller did know her and she definitely referred her. Oh, that was smart. Smart girl. So there was one other thing, though, that was bothering her about the call. The woman had a really bizarre accent, one that Lindsay couldn't exactly place, and she said she felt like it was someone trying to disguise their voice by talking with a fake Spanish or Mexican-sounding accent, and that's the phrase, that phrasing is how Lindsay described it. I'm unclear as to whether or not Lindsay ever got a name from this client. Hmm. She only ever referred to them as the Mexicans, a nod to the fake accent, or Million Dollar, which was how she saved the contact in her phone. Hmm. You would think that you would ask their name to write it down. If she had it, she didn't write it anywhere. Okay. Maybe it was just harder for her to think of and remember names quickly in her phone. And it's easier to remember the circumstance or something. So I'll give her that. But still. Oh, you're right. That's probably a good way for her to kind of know at a high level who this client Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. But you'd think she'd put like million dollar Mary. (laughs) That sounds good. Or like Mexican Martha. Like (laughs) something to recall the information, but also the name so that you have. (laughs) So like, you knew. because you can't yeah. you can't call her the mexican to her face no you no. cannot yeah so so whatever what she knew the name or not right so i'm gonna call the million dollar for yeah, the most that's part better but yes Lindsay was concerned enough about this gut feeling she had that something was off that she actually brought it up with her father and her boyfriend but after talking it through with them she ultimately decided to proceed with this new mystery client Jason, her boyfriend, had strongly encouraged Lindsay to take the client because the potential commission for a sale of this amount, it would just be huge, right? And she's 24, so that's an awesome sale. Jason also reminded her that she had received a similarly out-of-the-blue phone call from a woman with a $900,000 budget about a month ago, and that call had ultimately resulted in a sale. So, you know, I appreciate what he's doing. He's trying to use logic and examples to reassure her that everything is okay. So good for you, Jason, trying to comfort your girlfriend. Um, but seeing that she was still a little bit uncomfortable, though, Jason actually offered to show the property for Lindsay, but she declined. He then offered to wait outside the showing in his car so that he could be nearby in case Lindsay needed him for any reason. That's smart. And Lindsay thought so, too. So this plan was much more agreeable to her. So she did take him up on this offer. Um, I know you guys have not seen a picture of Jason yet. There will obviously be pictures posted on all of our socials, but just for a quick description, um, Lindsay was five foot two and ninety nine pounds. <laughs> Jason was a six foot three, two hundred and forty pound former semi pro hockey player. He could be quite the intimidating presence when he wanted to be. Uh, I'll say, yeah, yeah. Next to someone that's five foot two, I'm picturing that. Uh, I'm picturing the picture of Shaquille O'Neal next yeah. to his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Or The Rock next to Kevin Hart. Yeah. The, oh, the, height disparity is, the height disparity is not quite that intense, but that's just what my brain went to. <laughs> 
Um, and then, oh, for the record, before I forget, Lindsay did try to get a hold of that client who had supposedly referred the mystery caller to her, but unfortunately, they were unreachable. I, I couldn't find why they were unreachable. I'm thinking maybe they were away on vacation or yeah. something, but knowing that Jason had her back, she felt okay proceeding with the showing, and she didn't want to miss out on a sale of this size for some silly, like, paranoid feeling. Mm-hmm. In between that first phone call and the showing on Saturday, Lindsay spoke with Million Dollar at least 10 more times. One of those interactions would come on Friday when Lindsay emailed them a list of properties to review, all new and all vacant as requested. Another interaction would come later that day when Million Dollar called her to presumably discuss the properties that Lindsay had sent over earlier in that day. They settled on starting with a beautiful Gordon Head home. Uh, Gordon Head, I believe, is a neighborhood of Victoria. Oh for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Um, And this Gordon Head home was located at 1702 D'Souza Place. For Laura and Marina, I am going to pause the show right now and just show you guys the house, and then we'll come back and we'll describe it. So it really is a stunning home. Um, Beautiful curb appeal, well-landscaped grounds, a fenced-in yard, and according to Zillow, it has almost 3,000 square feet, four bedrooms, and two and a half baths. Um, I believe at the time it was listed for $965,000, so well within the client's budget. Mm-hmm. Any additional things that either of you would comment on the property at all? or I would buy it. Yeah. Would buy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would buy. It is a corner lot on a cul-de-sac as well. Oh, wow. Oh, all right. Yeah. So very appealing. Very appealing. Saturday rolled around, and despite having a bit more contact with her clients, Lindsay was still feeling kind of weird about the whole situation. In a final attempt to learn more information about him, she actually dropped by her Remax office on Chatterton Way to see if anyone there could help her. She had the receptionist cross-check Million Dollar's phone number with other agents in the Victoria area, hoping that somebody knew them. But nobody did. No records were found. Lindsay departed the office feeling disappointed, but still planning on going ahead with the showing. Well, that wouldn't be too weird, right? Because they were moving from somewhere else. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's true. So the receptionist was a really good friend of Lindsay's. So she kind of took note of Lindsay's behavior that day. And she said that Lindsay seemed to be acting really weird and freaked out when she was in the office. Hmm. At this point, it would be super easy for any of us to say, like, why didn't Lindsay cancel the showing? Why didn't she have Jason do it? But we go back to the whole hindsight is twenty twenty thing. Like, yeah, she had this gut feeling that something was off, but nothing, quote, bad had happened. So yep. she really needed the money. A friend of hers later told the police that Lindsay had been stressed out about finances leading up to her death. So it's super easy to tell yourself you're overreacting or being paranoid, especially, again, when nothing bad has actually happened. And if you're a people pleaser, it is really difficult to cancel on someone or to change you know so i'm sure that was pressure on her mind too like if this is a legitimate person they have urgency i should help them out they'll be upset so i i can totally see why she didn't cancel and how many times have we all had a bad feeling Mm -hmm. and nothing happened and it's been totally fine right so you're just like this is just another one of those instances it's gonna be fine yep like jason said i had a similar weird client about a month ago and look how well that worked out for me yeah So before the showing, Lindsay and Jason grabbed a late lunch at a now-closed restaurant in downtown Victoria called Sauce. I liked the name of the restaurant. I like that. That sounds like it would be in Hartford. It does sound like it would be in Hartford. Yeah. So now we're going to get into timelines. Just kind of keep that in your mind. So at 4.24 p.m., Lindsay and Jason paid their bill at the restaurant and they parted ways. She wanted to run home to change prior to her showing, and Jason actually had a quick errand to run, but he promised he would meet her there at 5.30. Before anybody gets upset at Jason for not sticking around and just being with Lindsay the entire time, the errand he was running was actually for her. Uh, The owners of a nearby auto shop, SHC Autographics, I think that's how you'd say it. It's autograph with an X at the end. 
Yeah. Anyway, they had hired Lindsay to help sell a property, and Jason was actually going there to present them with an offer on Lindsay's behalf. So it was okay. an errand for yeah. her. Jason can be seen arriving at SHC at exactly 4.30 p.m. on their security cameras. While he was there, Lindsay called him to let him know that she was ready and she was on her way over to Gordon Head. Jason reiterated that he would meet Lindsay there, and she confirmed she was fine to conduct the showing by herself with Jason just on standby. So he did offer one last time. Mm -hmm. I think another reason why they might have had him run this errand that day was to kind of give them like an excuse to have Jason nearby. Like they probably felt silly for being concerned about nothing happening. And it was kind of like, well, he has to deliver this paper back to me. So Mm. if he's going to be here anyway, you know, why not just have him be my security detail as well? Right. Yeah. Jason's friend, Cohen Oatman, which great name, Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason's friend, Cohen Oatman, who he either had dinner or hockey plans with later that night, met Jason out by his car. And the two men can be seen leaving the auto shop together at 530 to head over to meet Lindsay again, based on their security cameras. Jason immediately texts Lindsay to let her know he's running a little bit late, telling her, I'll come meet you and I'll be 10 to 15 minutes or so. So we're expecting Jason to get there now between 5.40 and 5.45 instead of 5.30. I don't like it. (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't either. I'm upset. Jason actually ended up having to call Lindsay because the home's address was not showing up in his car's GPS. So he needed directions. Going old school. He happened to catch her just as the clients were walking up. So she had to abruptly cut the call short saying to him, I'll see you in a bit. I got to go. The Mexicans are here. And she just texted him the address. At about 5.30, witnesses saw Lindsay greet a couple by the back of her car in the driveway before heading inside. This statement is supported by the lockbox on the house showing as having been accessed at 5.29 p.m. So it makes sense. Mm-hmm. They got there right around 5.30. At 5.38, Jason texts Lindsay to tell her he's just a couple minutes away, but there's no response. In fact, Lindsay doesn't even open the text message. <gasps> and there's never a response, is there? There never oh. is. At 5.45 p.m., Jason and Cohen pull up in the front of the property, and they actually see the front door of the home open and a man standing outside with his back to them. But the man quickly heads back inside and closes the door behind him. Jason also observes that Lindsay's black BMW is the only car parked in the driveway, and there's no other cars or anything parked on the street. Not super weird. The the clients could have parked and walked on another street. After all, Jason himself had issues finding the property, but, Mm. you know, he just notes it's a little bit weird. So he initially parks across the street from the house and waits a little bit before realizing that maybe what he just saw was actually the client just showing up and this showing just getting started. You know, Lindsay had seen he was going to be a little bit late, so maybe she had tried to delay going into the home, like trying to buy time for Jason to arrive. Um, But for whatever reason, when he has this thought that maybe the showing was just starting, He doesn't want to come off as an overprotective or overbearing boyfriend, which is something he does have a tendency to do. He moves his car to Torquay Street, which is the street located directly behind the home that Lindsay was showing. So remember, it's a corner Mm -hmm. lot. He waits about 10 minutes before sending her another text, this time asking, are you okay?" So at this point, Jason himself is actually starting to get worried that he hasn't heard anything from Lindsay. So he and Cohen get out of the car and they walk around the house to see what's going on. When Jason goes to open the front door, he finds that it's locked. Apparently, this is a huge red flag for Jason. I think it's common um, that homes actually stay unlocked during sellings and or during showings rather. And, you know, Jason's a realtor, too. So this makes him start to panic. And he rings the doorbell a ton of times, but there's no answer. And he said there's no movement in the home that he could hear either. Mm. He and his friend then walked around the back of the house looking for some kind of entrance. But 
They didn't find anything. The men then returned to the front of the house and tried to look into the windows to see, like, can they see Lindsay? Can they see anybody? What's going on? But all they see are Lindsay's shoes on the floor near the doorway. I don't like that. Jason's starting to get desperate to get inside when he notices a keypad on the garage door. So he thinks, okay, maybe if I can get in touch with the listing agent, they can tell me what the code is. But it is after hours, so the office is closed. Uh Never to fear, though, Mommy Dearest to the rescue. Jason calls his mom, because, right, she's the office manager, to see if she can try to help him get in touch with the listing agent. And she does have contact information, and Jason does reach out. I don't actually know if that person ever responded to him, um, because it, it, I'm going to assume no, because at 6.05 p.m., Jason called 911. Good for him. He explained his situation to the dispatcher, and he requested a welfare check on Lindsay. Good. Another case of someone that just said, you know, I could have easily been overreacting to yep. this, but I'm going to just do it anyway. Yeah. I don't think it helps us in this scenario, but no. But after hanging up, he and Cohen continue to look around the outside of the house for a way in, and they do eventually find one. There was a patio door left open that they either didn't notice the first time or had not yet been left opened. So remember, the yard is fenced in, so Jason actually has to boost Cohen over the fence. So Cohen goes in through the back door, and he runs to the front to unlock it for Jason, who's waiting there, so Jason doesn't have to scale the fence. Guys, if this ever happens to us, I volunteer to boost Laura up over the fence. Uh, 10 out of 10. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Laura's going up over that fence. <laughs> yes, I do is. have the longest legs, yes, so I feel true. that that's appropriate. Yep. So once Jason's inside the house, he makes a beeline to the top of the stairs, and he is just yelling, Lindsay, 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 the whole time he's running up the stairs. At the top of the stairs is the entry to the master bedroom, and as soon as Jason walks in, he finds Lindsay laying on her back in a oh. pool of her own blood. Oh, Jason, at this point, yells to Cohen to call 911, this time saying, get an ambulance. And Jason starts to check Lindsay for a pulse, and he tries to administer CPR. When police arrive, they immediately start to try to piece together the events that took place. They have Jason retrace his steps around the house and walk them through exactly what he and Cohen did. I think trying to get a feel for, like, where should their prints be in the house and, like, what had they maybe contaminated There is actually a video of that interaction with um, Jason and the the police. It's available online, and I'll put a link to it in our show notes. But it's just basically him recapping that he was kind of banging on the door. Cohen ran in, and he, for whatever reason, was just struck to run up the stairs to the master. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that weird because the master bedroom is like very visible from Mm -hmm. the top of the stairs. So it makes sense why he would go there because Cohen already had the downstairs covered. Yep. Mm. Oh, wait. I have to, can I ask an yes. off the record question? Because I don't sure. know if you know the answer. You said that people saw her greet people at the back of her car. Like there were actual like neighbors and witnesses that saw a couple. There like was, they yes, saw her there was, with a couple. Yes, there was somebody that was on the street. I don't know if they were a neighbor or like working on something on the street. But yeah, there was a witness. Okay, because my brain is just thinking like, what if it was Cohen and Jason that just like went there and got in the house and fucked her up? But if they, we know like, it if was somebody... a male and a female. Okay. Yeah, I did have the same thought. Like I was wondering if that was why the police were asking about their actions and everything to see to rule them out i think i think at that point in time it was just to see like because they ask him in the video like did you touch anything in the house and they're mm-hmm. like did you touch the banister and he's like i i don't know i ran oh, up the stairs he's yeah. like, i probably touched it down here so okay. i think they were just trying to see like where should their stuff be got it so once the police are satisfied that they have an understanding of jason and cohen's actions they do take the men into custody for further questioning i don't think that this is anything other than standard operating procedure mm-hmm. um 
I'm not surprised, right? The two of them were at the scene and yeah. usually police start by looking at the spouse or the partner of the deceased. So double whammy for Jason. <laughs> I was going to say two for one. <laughs> well, not only that, that's the best source of information at this point and you want to mm. get yep. to people when their memories are fresh because your memory fades very True. rapidly. True. Yeah, what did you eat for breakfast? Could well, do. I eat the same thing every day. I was going to so say, that oh, okay. I can do. Okay. But, yeah. Well, that backfired on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Pumpkin spice protein shakes for life. I eat the breadless <laughs> egg sandwich from Jimmy Dean. It is so good. Never heard of it. It's got like caramelized onions and bacon and... Oh, oh, that sounds hearty and delightful. So good. Yeah, and good for you. What a great way to start your day, Laura. Yeah, you know. Okay. A plus. I had no breakfast today. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm fucking oh, up no. so much. That's why you can't remember. That's why I can't read good. I can't read good. <laughs> <laughs> the Saanich Police Department also had a canine unit conduct a sweep of the house to look for clues. Good on them. But they came up mostly empty-handed. Mm. There were no fingerprints, no DNA other than Lindsay's, and no weapons found at the scene. No DNA. Just Lindsay's. I don't know how bizarre that would be if you have a house that no one is living in that you're showing. You're probably, you probably wiped it down. Like a million dollar house, like they paid for that to be cleaned and staged. Oh, agreed. But I take one step and three hairs fall out of my head. Yeah, so that's true. I, I just don't know how you can't give have any DNA. That's I actually, know. I could never commit a crime because I showed no, too much. Same, <laughs> same. My in-laws always are like, yep, Laura was here. <laughs> Guys, that's where early early balding comes in handy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was the, was the couple bald? <laughs> <laughs> no, they both had hair. Oh, okay. oh. Right. So that wasn't it. Thought I solved it. <laughs> not today, Laura. Not today. <laughs> Lindsay, unfortunately, would not survive her injuries. Oh. She was stabbed more than 40 times. 4-0. <gasps> that's like a crime of passion yeah. when somebody it stabs someone. It feels that way. Many times. And oh, stabbing yeah. is very personal. Right. Too, it should like be overkill. Up. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Overkill, yeah. So perhaps more disturbing than the count was that she did not have a single defensive wound on her body, which indicated what? she was likely stabbed in the back when <gasps> the attack began. I don't like that. So she never even had a chance to see this coming oh. or fight back whatsoever. Why would someone do this to her? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find out that a lot of people think they know a lot of reasons, but nobody can say for sure yet. Uh, okay. So just a couple other things. There was no indication of sexual assault and nothing was stolen from Lindsay. Like she still had her Blackberry in her pocket. Cause remember, it's 2008. So we all have Blackberries. Uh, so nothing was stolen and there, there wasn't anything in the house to steal either. Cause you're to your right. point, it's an empty house, but that makes a murder more bizarre. I'm not saying I, I would prefer that she had been sexually assaulted, but like right. at least that provides like a motivation. Right. And right. like once I've raped her, I, she can't live. Yes. Right. But to just murder someone basically for sport like that to me is even more bizarre than other circumstances. Yeah. And so far, right, based on the scene, there's no indication as to why this happened to right. Lindsay. There's no clues anywhere. The coroner would put her time of death at approximately 5.40 p.m., just five minutes oh. before Jason and Cohen arrived. Ouch. Her oh. official cause of death was blood loss due to multiple stab wounds. Mm. Police speculate that she was actually attacked between 5.38 p.m. and 5.41 p.m. Her BlackBerry made an outgoing call at 5.41, and it's actually believed to be a pocket dial, <gasps> like, during the attack. Oh. Um, because it left a voicemail to an old friend of hers she had not talked to in forever, but it was just muffled sounds. There wasn't <gasps> anything that anybody could make out from the recording, so police feel pretty confident this was a pocket dial. Oh my gosh, well, they she's being murdered. They couldn't like, send that out for analysis. 
I think they did look oh. at it and it, there was oh. nothing. It was just like muffled movement was all they heard. Since Jason Cohen and the other witness all stated that they only ever saw Lindsay's car at the scene, the police speculate that the suspects were dropped off at the property and had a getaway car waiting nearby. They believe that the couple escaped through the back door, the one that Cohen eventually found open, and mm -hmm. they snuck out of the yard through a section of the home's fence that was missing three boards. They then believe that the couple quickly hopped in a car that was waiting for them and drove away because nobody reported seeing this couple walking in the mm -hmm. area. Right. Was this a, a decently populated, like densely populated yes. neighborhood too? Okay. Well, it's a it's densely populated in the sense that there's a lot of houses there, but I actually think the road Torquay Street, I think it might have been all new construction oh. that was unoccupied. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. So fair warning the next part of this is going to be very graphic so if anybody is sensitive to those kind of things maybe skip forward about a minute but for everybody who is willing to listen to this i think it's important to understand the nature of Lindsay's injuries especially as we start to try to think through like who might have done this to her and why so i want to read to you a description of what happened according to a post her father made on his facebook page so this is a direct quote that i'm reading first stab from behind in her neck this severed her spinal cord, leaving her immobile and not able to function, but alive and conscious, the horror. They turned her around and continued stabbing while she watched them in horror, excessively, possibly over 40 times, ravaging her, savage-like, mutilating her breasts, slitting her throat, looking her in the eye, watching her in horror, helpless, defenseless, draining the life from her body. Lindsay watched those killers. Lindsay knows who killed her. She ran out of blood. She died. They watched. The horror, the horror. Wow. That was hard to listen to. And helpful to hear in that your thought of they must have stabbed her from behind and the idea that it severed her spinal no cord. No defensive wounds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was, that was tough to listen that to. Was wow. So for anybody who is just rejoining <laughs> us, I would say the highlights of that quote that I read is basically the reason there were no defensive wounds on Lindsay's body is that one of the stab wounds uh, severed her spinal cord paralyzing her so that is why there were no defensive wounds you guys good <laughs> yeah because yeah. i literally registering. wrote pause for therapy <laughs> in my notes accurate though yeah Oof. yeah i that's even worse listening to as a parent because like that's yeah. the, her father yeah her her father has been like the biggest advocate for getting justice for Lindsay. um sometimes to his detriment we'll talk more about him a little bit later but he has, this has really become his life's mission to figure out what mm -hmm. happened to his daughter. I can't say how I would react, but I totally get when people just lean into it. Like you hear about parents that need to read the full autopsy report or yeah. need to view every photo. And despite how graphic and horrible it is, one, it's their way of grieving. It's mm -hmm. their way of processing it. And two, it's like your child is gone. There's nothing you can do about it. So the only thing that you can do is just lean into it. Yep as hard as you can and do whatever yeah. you can. But I, I, like I said, I can't, I don't know how I would react, but damn. Yeah. Damn indeed. After coming up empty at the scene, police decide to focus their early efforts on the cell phone that the caller used. Oh, so yeah. what they find out is actually not all that helpful, but I do want to talk about it. So they find that it's a prepaid cell phone. Of course it of is. Of course it is. That was purchased in Vancouver in late November of 2007, and it was activated in late January of 2008. Police found that the phone was registered to Apollo Rodriguez and a valid business address located in Vancouver. But 
After further investigation, police believe this is a fake name and that that address was just chosen at random because it was a valid address. From cell phone tower records, police can see that the cell phone made its way over to Victoria on the ferry from the mainland just 24 hours before Lindsay was murdered. Hmm. What's stranger about the phone is that the phone seemed to be used for one purpose and one purpose only, which was to contact Lindsay Buziak. No calls, no text messages, nothing from that phone went to anybody other than Lindsay, and it was deactivated shortly after her murder. That's so bizarre. Oh, that's suspicious, yeah. There was one other lead that the Sandwich police had to follow. That eyewitness that I had mentioned who saw Lindsay greet that couple, he was actually able to give the police enough detail to be able to put together a sketch. That's impressive because I can't, I don't know the last stranger I saw. Like, I can't describe the last stranger I saw. But we also don't know how accurate it was either because your memory can play tricks on you. Or how detailed it was. Right. But I will tell you. He had eyes, a nose, (laughs) two arms. Yes. Not bald. (laughs) Not bald. So this eyewitness account, and I don't know the witness's name, so we're just going to call him eyewitness. So this eyewitness account coupled with what Jason saw, because remember, Jason saw the back of somebody. (laughs) The back of your head is ridiculous. That's all I can think (laughs) of right now. So it meant that police knew the following about our suspects. Both the man and the woman were Caucasian. The man had a medium build and was approximately six feet tall with dark or brown hair. And he was wearing a classy brown jacket that probably fell right below his waist. The woman was described as being approximately 35 to 40 years old with shorter, like shoulder length blonde hair. And she was wearing a distinctive dress. The dress was described as being a designer dress with a distinctive black, white and red or pink pattern on it. Hmm. So police like I had mentioned, were surprisingly able to render a sketch based on this description. But uh, honestly, guys, it's really vague. Um, So I'm going to show the two of you the sketch right now. And then for our gremlins, this will absolutely be posted on our socials so you can take a look for yourselves. Yeah, probably probably narrows it down to like five million people. Yeah, just about. (laughs) Yeah. So Colby just showed me the sketch, guys, and I have solved it. Um, it is either Beavis or Butthead in a wig <laughs> that uh, that murdered Accurate. Lindsay. So yep. you guys are enjoying Grim. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that that's why Beavis and Butthead have, have been missing from the spotlight all these years. Oh my God, we did we solved two for one. <laughs> Boom! Wow, that is a terrible like that is the most yeah. generic sketch, mm-hmm. and it's titled "The Woman in the Fancy Dress." <laughs> yes, which I really like. And we were also discussing how that I don't know how they would say that's like necessarily designer dress i feel like i could find something similar on amazon i was picturing it had like actual designer logo or something and that's how you knew but or like super structured like you can almost tell when something's very expensive but then i don't know that looks pretty generic to me well it's interesting that you picked up on that these police were definitely not fashion connoisseurs (laughs) uh but in 2017 it was reported that the dress was finally found at a consignment shop in the greater victoria area okay that's creepy but unfortunately for police as you two sussed out very quickly the dress was not a -a one-of-a-kind designer (laughs) item it was one of hundreds of thousands that could have easily have been purchased at any number of department stores yeah sounds about right meaning the dress was not going to give them the big break in the case that they were hoping it would it's Mm too bad they don't know who consigned the consigned the dress though because that, that could have been bad. a lead normally they track that information mm. because that's how you get paid that is what i was thinking yep mm, maybe Unless somebody it was just a, dumped a pile or like if it was like will. a three yeah like a it oh, must be oh. like a thrift store versus a consignment store oh, because okay. consignment yep. stores they definitely track who you are so that you can get paid from the investigation that the Capital Daily had conducted in 2019, the public was able to learn a little bit more about the early days of the investigation. So here's, here's what we learned from that. 
Right away, the police observed that there were missing chat files that had been deleted from Lindsay's laptop, but they were unclear when exactly this would have occurred. They also observed that Lindsay's online activity dwindled into non-existence in the days leading up to her murder. Remember, it's 2008, and Facebook is huge, mm-hmm. like peak popularity. If you are not on Facebook, you might as well not exist huge. Mm. Lindsay was a very active user, so investigators found it strange when from January 24th through February 3rd, there was not a single message to or from any of Lindsay's 700 Facebook friends. That's huh. weird. Police also took note of Lindsay's friend list, and they noticed some highly questionable characters in there, specifically some that were, quote, violent criminals and involved in the illegal distribution of drugs. Oh. Hmm. That's a, that's a grim fact. It is a grim <laughs> fact. So questionable company she might be keeping. Okay. All right. But... Back in 2008, we really just had the two leads to go off of here. So with their two initial leads, the cell phone and the dress, producing little to no answers, coupled with the lack of DNA at the scene, police start to seriously consider the possibility that this is the work of a professional contract killer. But who would want to have Lindsay, the girl with no enemies, killed? Yeah. Well, police and others, Lindsay's father, have their theories. Hit me with them. All right. (laughs) Theory number one, the scorned lover, Jason with help from Shirley. Did you like how I named them? (laughs) Yes. I don't know why I did that, but it was fun. So to get a potential motive here, we need to go back a couple months prior to her murder to December of 2007. So Lindsay and her friend Nikki were hanging out at the condo that she and Jason shared just on a random night. On this particular night, Lindsay told Nikki that she was going to leave Jason after she closed a handful of real estate deals that the two were working together. In a true Lifetime movie fashion, as they were having this discussion, the girls heard a noise by the bedroom door, and they discovered it was Jason standing behind it, eavesdropping on their entire conversation. So he heard everything. The two girls panicked because they were just talking about Lindsay leaving Jason, Mm -hmm. and they, they left the condo. Jason attempted to call Lindsay numerous times, but she never answered. Based on phone records, we know that after he gave up calling Lindsay, he called his mother. Again, mommy dearest to the rescue. Um, Against Nikki's wishes, Lindsay actually did return home later that night. And to her surprise, Jason never mentioned what he heard. In fact, Jason never mentioned it any night. He never brought it up again. So about a page ago, I thought I had this figure. I mean, I didn't know who. I just thought I understood all the facts of this case. I thought we were just trying to figure out who this couple was and that would be it. I am so confused. I'm confused about Lindsay and her Facebook friends. I'm confused about Jason. I'm confused about these interactions. And I feel like it's going to get worse. That is very uncomfortable that he didn't bring it up. Yes. It's very, very uncomfortable. So. She didn't bring it up either. Yes. I feel like you got to just address that. Yes. Because somebody should have been like, so uh, elephant in the room. <laughs> like, yeah. And also that Nikki, Nikki, right? Yep. W- didn't want her to go back to the apartment. If you're just, you know. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be just a verbal fight. I don't know that that's a reason to not go back. Right, like so that's a little weird. She, what was she so concerned yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't even think it'd be a verbal fight. I feel like there right. would be tears right. if you're right. talking about exactly. like breaking up. He'd be like, yeah. please don't leave me. Like, can we discuss this? What can I do? Like, right. They're like, just kidding. We'll just nobody will talk about it ever again. Love you. OK, thanks. Bye. <laughs> So Lindsay's father actually confirmed that there was trouble in paradise. Lindsay had told him that the Zalos, Jason and his mother, were both controlling, overbearing, jealous and possessive. Her father claims that when Lindsay was visiting him in December, she told him she was going to leave Jason and quit her job at Remax. 
Could Jason overhearing that Lindsay wanted to leave him have been enough of a motive for him to want her killed? Not a professional killer himself. Did he ask his mom to help him orchestrate a hit on Lindsay because she didn't want to be with him anymore? Well, let's look at how Jason was behaving. Was he Hmm. being suspicious? Jason had been fully cooperative with the authorities from from day one, right from the beginning. He immediately turned over the Toshiba laptop that he and Lindsay shared, his personal cell phone, and he even agreed to a polygraph test, which, by the way, he passed. Oh. Again, I don't think it's out of the ordinary that police were questioning him. He Mm -hmm. was at the crime scene and he was her partner. Throughout the years when he's been asked, though, if he and Lindsay were having problems and if they were close to breaking up, he's always denied it. Some people have said that that's suspicious that he's denied it. But look, he's in a no win situation here. So let's play this out. Let's say he's truly innocent. If he agrees that he and Lindsay were having trouble, it's a reason to cast suspicion on himself. And why would he do that? Now, let's say he's guilty. Admitting to knowing Lindsay wanted to leave him, that would be admitting to having a motive for the crime. And he's not that stupid. And even if he was that stupid, his mother sure as hell is not. Right. Since they were together at the time of her death, it's kind of hard to say how serious Lindsay was about leaving Jason because she did visit her father in December. Um, And actually, maybe dad and a couple friends knew, but her sister, Sarah, who she was really close to, was actually quoted on a couple specials, like after Lindsay's death, Mm. when she was being interviewed as saying she she personally adored Jason and the two of them were really happy together. She said that Jason made her sister really happy. And like, yeah, sure, maybe Jason overheard the convo between Lindsay and Nikki, but Nobody brought it up again, so maybe he thought she was just blowing off steam. I mean, it would be a little bit weird, but like maybe she was just in a mood or something. I get that. Like, I think in the early parts of my relationship with my husband, like as you're getting to know one another, and that wasn't that early, but still, as you're getting to know one another and settle in, you fight about stupid things and you call your girlfriends and and complain or you call somebody and complain about it. So I don't know. I could kind of see that. Yeah. Yeah. We should also consider the possibility that perhaps Shirley acted independently of Jason after hearing that Lindsay was planning on leaving her son and her company. She would have speculated that once Lindsay left, Lindsay would have taken her clients with her. So perhaps that was just a loss greater than she was willing or able to accept. Wow. For what it's worth, Jason was publicly cleared of any wrongdoing by the Saanich Police Department about a year into the investigation. Sergeant Chris Horsley had explained that with the combination of evidence, including text messages and surveillance videos, had made them quite confident he was not the person responsible for her death. While they did not issue as extensive of a statement, Shirley has also been cleared by the Saanich Police Department. Okay. All right. So not too much to theory one, really, that I I could find much merit behind. So let's talk about theory number two. Drug dealers that contracted a hit. Mm. So another theory, and this is where things get really interesting, is that the Mexican cartel orchestrated a hit on Lindsay. I I know, I know, based on the faces you guys are giving me right now, you're probably thinking, wait, what in the actual fuck are you saying? Mm -hmm. And you're right. But hear me out here. So culminating in Canada's largest drug bust to date, Operation High Noon in 2008 was focused on taking down a crime network that allegedly transported large volumes of cocaine from British Columbia to Alberta. Over a several-month period, beginning in January of 2008, police arrested 14 people and seized 80 kilograms of cocaine. They also seized four handguns, a rifle, and $300,000 in cash. For reference, that amount of cocaine would have been worth $8 million. Oh, I was wondering how many pounds that was. Not that that would matter to me because I still don't know how much a pound of cocaine (laughs) costs. It's a lot of cocaine. Yeah, okay. (laughs) One one kilo is 2.2 pounds. Thank you. 
So what does Lindsay have to do with all of this? After all, she does not live in Alberta. Well, in December of 2007, she did spend four days in Calgary visiting her father, and Calgary is located in the province of Alberta. Hmm. Interestingly enough, while Lindsay was there, she twice reached out to an old acquaintance of hers, once by phone and once through Facebook, and it is believed that she did actually get together with him and some other friends. Not related to the same friend who got butt-dialed? No. Oh, darn. Okay. The person she contacted was Erickson Del Alcazar, one of the men who was charged in connection with Operation High Noon. Hmm. I do want to make it very clear that Lindsay was not a known drug user and she was in no way, shape, or form involved in the drug trade. So that's not where this is yep, going. Yep, okay. It is believed that she literally was just reaching out to her former classmate to catch okay. up with him. Yeah, fair. But Lindsay actually had a bit of a habit of keeping some questionable company. So kind of going back to thinking about those friends on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, the man she dated prior to Jason was named Matt McDuff, and he had multiple connections to organized crime, including being friends with a man named Vid Acevedo. When Lindsay was dating Matt, they actually both had their cell phones tapped by the government to monitor them regarding any illegal activity. Okay. Again, Goodness. none of the information implicated Lindsay in anything yep. illegal whatsoever. They got nothing from her and Matt. Huh. The Zalo family is not without their own questionable contacts. Shirley Zalo rented a property for five years to a criminal named Ziggy Matheson. Ziggy is his nickname, but I liked Ziggy better than his real name. So mm -hmm. uh, Ziggy also happened to be really good friends with Jason and Shirley's other son, who I believe is named Ryan. Ziggy's a bad dude, like had oh. his ex-girlfriend murdered bad <gasps> dude. So we're not going to say anything else about Ziggy. Oh, at the time of Lindsay's murder, Vid was actually dating the receptionist that worked at Lindsay's Remax office. Who she was good friends with, right? Yes. So to connect the dots even further for you guys and for our gremlins, on lindsaybuziakmurder.com, there are pictures of three men, Jason, Ziggy, and Vid, all together. So it's not much of a stretch that there could be some kind of an organized crime component when you really think about it. Hmm. So each family and or family, Lindsay had some questionable contacts. Jason had yep. some questionable contacts. Shirley has some questionable contacts. Huh. When you said questionable contacts, I mean, like I was friends in high school with questionable people, you know, people that smoked weed, you know, <laughs> when it wasn't legal or, you know, people that got suspended or detention, yeah. not like organized crime, no. drug dealers. No, My either. phone was never tapped by the government. I mean, that you know of. That I know of, that's right. That you know After of. all our recent Googling, it probably is. Oh yeah, for sure. Remember that I mentioned the cell phone use to contact Lindsay was not activated until late January of 2008? Yes, I do. Well, as it just so happens, on January 22nd, 2008, so prior to the phone being activated, Erickson Del Alcazar was arrested in connection with drug trafficking. So the working theory here is that the cartel knew somebody had to have snitched on them. And because Lindsay had recently been in contact with Erickson, it was believed that she was that person. Oh, wow. We, I'm kind of buying that. Yeah. We also know that the cartel was on the hunt to find the informant. There were several reports of women being woken up in the middle of the night and being dragged out of bed, relentlessly being berated and questioned regarding the drug bust. Maybe somebody named Lindsay then, or maybe it didn't even matter if Lindsay was the informant. Maybe they just needed somebody to make an example out of. Or maybe somebody that. sold her down the river because yeah. they just didn't care. Yep. To lend further support to this theory, Lindsay's father has stated that on two separate occasions, once in 2006 and again in 2007, Lindsay told him she saw something she shouldn't have. Oh, boy. I have never in my life made that statement. <laughs> 
So I just feel like something really wrong something had bad, to have right? happened. You've never been on the pool deck of a cruise ship? Because I have definitely said that statement. Okay. I take, I take <laughs> that back. I take that back. Yeah. Was she on a cruise? <laughs> no, no. Dear Lindsay was not on a cruise. She never elaborated on this statement, nor did she confirm if it was truly two separate instances or if on both occasions she was talking about the same event. Okay. Oh, my gosh. So did Lindsay see something on that trip to visit her father in December of 2007? Maybe that's why she was so nervous about taking on a random client. Yeah. And okay. So I'm also thinking about that where I would have been freaked out and I probably would have brought, you know, my husband or whoever with me. But would I have been that freaked out? Because you're meeting strangers all the time. Yeah, right. And you're meeting people alone, presumably, maybe, you know, I don't know, with no protection. It's extra weird because it was so fast and whatever. But I guess, why would you be that afraid? Yeah. And she was acting weird that whole weekend leading up to it. So I don't know. That's kind of what sat with me, too, because I I mean, I think there's an inherent level of risk being a female real estate agent. Like you are vulnerable in a lot of ways. But I mean, you right because you're in the house by yourself there's clients coming there like something could happen to mm-hmm. you but I, I think it's just kind of a risk of the job and I, I don't think it like something bad happens all that often there is one big problem with this cartel theory though um, and it's that we know that Lindsay was not the police informant we know that someone tipped off the police in November of 2007 which would have been prior to Lindsay's visit to Calgary and prior to her reaching out to Erickson that so, does nothing to affect the theory for right. me, though, because same. she doesn't have to be the actual informant right. for them to think that she's the informant or for them to think that she could tell someone something that she saw that she shouldn't have. That is exactly what I was going to say. Okay. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. But just worth putting it out there. Yep. She was not the informant in this specific yeah. occurrence. And in okay. fact, as far as we know, Lindsay never acted as a police agent. Okay. I'm still buying the cartel theory yeah. right now. So... Where does this leave us? As somebody who fancies themselves pretty good at putting together puzzles and problem solving, I want to share my opinion, and I cannot stress enough opinion, of what happened to Lindsay. So based on my knowledge and research of the case, to me, it very clearly feels like somebody close to Lindsay set her up. I can't say for sure exactly who or what their motive was, but from how she was killed, it feels like somebody personally wanted revenge. When most people think about contract killings, or at least when I do, I think of a single man with a gun, Mm -hmm. not a couple with one or more knives. But what if that was part of the arrangement? What if someone asked them to make it look like it was a deeply personal attack? What if they only used the knife to avoid the possibility of neighbors hearing gunshots? Mm. Her murder occurred in a very succinct window from 529 Mm. to 541 p.m., 12 minutes. In that amount of time, the suspects would have had to have killed Lindsay, covered their tracks, and left the home and area without being seen. That level of precision and planning seems very much like it had been carried out by professionals or a professional. Mm. Right, because the guys were also circling the house during that same time frame, right? So they had to find the window to escape when they weren't in that area. I would never, ever believe that your average person could commit a murder, clean up, get out, not leave a trace behind in 12 minutes. Never. No. Yeah, because it also would have had to escalate in that time. If right. it wasn't premeditated, It something had to have happened in that 12 minutes for them to want to murder her. This is a very random comparison, but have you guys seen the movie Sully about the uh, pilot that lands the plane on the Hudson? I haven't seen the movie, but I know who you're talking about. They run all these simulations and they keep being like, he can safely land. Like, he can safely land. And they were like, do you know what you're not accounting for? 
like human error, yes. right. human reaction. Right. Like somebody can plan something and have it all set yeah. up for 12 minutes, but you're not accounting for how your body reacts when you're mm-hmm. nervous or, mm-hmm. you know, if you make a mistake or your brain can't think that quickly. Right. So it's like you're not accounting for human error. Definitely. Yeah. So I think the original plan was for the suspects to walk right out the front door, but I think Jason arriving startled them. They adjusted their plan and left out the back, leaving the door open that Cohen later entered the house through. Mm -hmm. There are conflicting reports of where exactly Jason was waiting before attempting to enter the home after 6 p.m. I read that he first parked out front for 10 minutes before parking around back, but I also read that he just parked out back. If Jason was privy to a plot to murder Lindsay, maybe he needed to stay parked around front to give the killers a chance to escape out the back without tipping off Cohen to what was happening. Mm. Maybe even Cohen was with him, so Jason seemed like he had a stronger alibi. Because this whole thing isn't already weird enough, I also need to share that on Friday, February 1st, so the day before Lindsay's murder, nine senior officers retired from the Saanich Police Department. Two of them were senior detectives that almost certainly would have been assigned to her case. There was also apparently a huge party that night to celebrate their retirement. So was someone aware of this and intentionally chose 2-2 to carry out their attack on Lindsay because he knew that the SPD's A squad was no longer available? Or is this just yet another coincidence? I wonder how far in advance they announced their retirement, though, right? Because she set up that showing was it like oh like two or three days earlier right right but that doesn't mean the plot to murder her could not have been in the works before two to three days sooner definitely Hmm. so i'm just gonna put it out there the zalos have connections to both the police department and known criminals maybe the zalos themselves were involved in some questionable activities maybe not i don't know i'm just putting the question out there to pose the thought but what if what Lindsay had seen wasn't related to drug trafficking at all what if she was aware of something the Zalos were involved with, and if she wanted out of the relationship, they just couldn't let her leave because of what she knew? Mm. Again, just stipulating for the sake of conversation, I am not saying these are facts, but there are some things I'm willing to say are facts. Fact, someone tipped off the police about the drugs being moved between British Columbia and Alberta. As a result of this tip, there was a massive drug bust in Alberta. A couple months before her death, Lindsay met with one of the guys who was arrested in connection with drug trafficking during Operation High Noon. She worked with someone who was dating a man known to be connected to that same group. That person she worked with, who I will not name publicly, gave Lindsay the property address to share with her clients. Hmm. Wait, say that again? That person she worked with, the receptionist, and this happens a lot, she gave her like the listing, like show this to your clients. Oh. Or at least that's what I had read. And I think that's pretty common. Realtors will like source properties from each other. Yeah. So based on these facts, all I'm saying is it's not out of the realm of possibility that someone within the REMAX office, either knowingly or unknowingly, set Lindsay up to look like she was acting as a police informant. But Lindsay never was. She was just the perfect scapegoat. Hmm. Oh, man. So before we wrap up, I do want to give an update on what's currently happening right now with this case, because there's some minor stuff happening. We've talked a bit about Lindsay's father's efforts to get justice for his daughter. I think it's safe to say that he's gone above and beyond, and occasionally to his own detriment. He has been openly critical of police and the Zalo family. With the police, he feels like they have not done enough to solve the murder. With the Zalo family, he feels like they haven't done enough to help solve the murder. He is very candid with his views and feelings on the blog, lindsayboosiakmurder.com, even going as far as to call out certain individuals by name when he thinks they have information they should be sharing but are not. Hmm. 
this is no small deal because when I say it's a popular blog, it receives about 3,500 visits a day. Wow. Wow. So people see the things that are posted on that blog. Wow. And look, don't get me wrong. From Jeff Buziak's perspective, he's a grieving father who lost one of his little girls. Like, no parent should have to bury their child, let alone endure what Jeff has had to go through here. Mm -hmm. But you can't just implicate people in active investigations, no matter how shitty the situation surrounding it might be. Because sometimes there are consequences, even for those with the best intentions. In April of this year, Shirley Zalo filed a defamation lawsuit against three people, one of them being Jeff Buziak. Mm -hmm. She claims that she's been the victim of relentless online attacks on lindsaybuziakmurder.com. Her two sons, Jason and Ryan, while not named in the lawsuit, have also been the subject of such attacks. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of material on that site while I was doing my research, and Jeff is very bold in some of the statements that he makes. And you can comment anonymously on the blog, which I think is not good. That should not be a function. But people say like some pretty like factual things. Like we've been saying, I think, I feel, based on my research, these are like, definitive facts of statement the way that they're made and i'll be honest i have not heard although i can see there's a theory where she could be involved i have not heard a single thing that would make me be like she did it like not even close i would encourage our listeners to go check out the blog and also to read the comments that are being posted on it shirley's claim alleges that jeff and two others conspired to publish defamatory comments about her on the website and to accuse her of murder Shirley has repeatedly denied any involvement in Lindsay's murder, and just as a reminder, she herself has been cleared by the local police. Mm -hmm. She attributes a loss in the real estate business over the year, a decline in her mental health and reputation to these accusations. And she's got some pretty strong examples to support the loss of business claim, citing specific emails she's received from clients dropping her as their agent once they, quote, find out who she really is several several of them even saying like, you're a terrible person. You should be in jail. Okay. So it it is rough. Like, I totally see how she would have lost business over the years. Like, nobody wants to give their business to somebody that's implicated in a murder. And she's not. So she shouldn't be dealing with this. And honestly, I'll just say that's why we do the research we do. Like, we know that we, we, obviously, this one's unsolved. We don't have all the facts. We have as many facts as we can get, but we don't have all the truth. And we always do everything we can to fact check things, to cross check things. And when people write comments like that, that appear as fact, if someone else reads just that comment, maybe they're going to think that that's the fact when it's not. And you have a nervous lawyer in the mix who's like, it it appears that we may believe that potentially, possibly, because you can't come out and say something that you don't know. And we will never have all of the information on cases. Exactly. Like one of my pet peeves is people watching televised coverage or news coverage of trials and they're like oh well i know this and i know that and i said you are not in the courtroom Uh you will hear things on tv that the jury will never hear because it gets excluded or or vice versa exactly so it's like you don't know how the evidence went in you weren't there you didn't see these witnesses like when you don't know you don't know and you can't come out and like assert something as truth when you don't know right that's been eye-opening in doing research if you watch you know i'll watch a documentary and of course i know sometimes they embellish things but 
when I'm actually researching something and I watch a documentary and then cross check it and then read three books or whatever, it, <laughs> it is really mind blowing what is either completely not true. And I know they put all the disclaimers, but people don't think that way. Mm-hmm. They'll even change names. They'll change dates. Mm-hmm. They change details. And, it, you know, so even when we do extensive research, which is probably far more than the commenters are doing on, on that blog, we still don't know all the details. So anyway, right. on a little rant there, but you down from your soapbox (laughs) for now (laughs) so while this lawsuit obviously presents an obstacle to Lindsay's father it's not going to stop him nothing has stopped him in the 14 years since Mm. Lindsay has been murdered as far as he's concerned it's just another injustice for him to fight Mm. speaking of which growing increasingly frustrated with the lack of progress in solving his daughter's case Jeff Buziak has recently hired a popular research and investigative services firm the Zonta Group to take a fresh look If anyone out there has information they would like to share with the Zonta Investigations Group, you will find an anonymous tip line on their website. I stupidly went to get the number because I was like, why wouldn't they just put it there? It's like a form. It's like an anonymous tip form. Okay. If you wish to speak with someone personally, you can contact the CEO of the Zonta Research Group directly at 778-995-2860. Over the years, Jeff has invested a ton of his own money into getting justice for Lindsay, even at one point putting up a $500,000 reward in 2012 for a tip leading to the arrest of her killer. Wow. After 14 years, he's largely depleted his personal resources. Um, So if you would like to help contribute to his efforts, and the efforts would be the research Mm -hmm. that the Zonta group is going to do and just working to be able to publicize her murder, Jeff has started a GoFundMe account. And even if you can't donate to the GoFundMe, just sharing the link can always be a really big help. So we will put the link to the GoFundMe in our episode notes, um, and we'll also put it in our socials. So I I do truly hope that one day we find out what really happened to Lindsay Buziak. And one thing that I know for certain was that her death was completely senseless and through no fault of her own. I think just to kind of recap like where I stand on this, I don't, she obviously was not the informant that snitched on the cartel, but I do think it's possible that somebody set her up to take Mm -hmm. the fall. And I do think it's likely that it was somebody that was in the the real estate office because they had to know how did they know the property like she only certain people would know that property it's not like it's public knowledge um so my thought is what happened is somebody set her up and this person might have innocently done it like her friend might have given her that listing not knowing what she was really setting into motion and i i don't i don't think her friend did anything with malicious intent not from she did quit her job though at the Remax office, yeah, I believe the day after Lindsay was killed, it could have yeah. been too much. I wouldn't yeah. want to go to work without you. Like that would yeah. suck. Yeah, I I also think so. I'm I'm with you so far on on what happened. I think she was definitely set up. the The fact that they contacted her personal number is is it's weird. Weird, assuming that that has not happened before. We don't again with us not knowing all the facts. Maybe that was occasionally what happened. I don't know. Um, but that's bizarre, but I agree completely. It's senseless. And I do feel for Jeff, the father. I just, I mean, as you said, no, no parent should bury their child. The personal phone thing. I'm just wondering, for example, today I got a phone call to my work phone and I was in court, so I couldn't answer it. So then I got a call to my cell phone and I picked it up and it was the same attorney that had just called me on my work phone. I don't give my phone number out, but if I'm out at court and need to make a phone call and don't have my laptop open, I have to call from my cell phone. So hmm. if people save that information, right. yep. she couldn't get a hold of that person. I mean, she maybe. could have called that person on her cell phone if she was at a property right. and needed to touch base with them. So maybe her cell yeah. phone is out there. 
Um, I, it is still a little bizarre, but I mean, I feel like that is somewhat of an explanation as to how someone yep. could have it. Yeah. I think it was, as you said, definitely set up because there's no, I don't think there was any intention of the people that arrived there to purchase any properties. I, I that was fully to murder her. Like I said, for how quickly it happened, it was nothing that could have escalated. There was not, um, you know, any other clear motive. So I find it interesting that her dad, you know, I love interesting, <laughs> but I find it interesting that her dad would come out and feel so strongly that um, Shirley and Jason were involved because Same. you haven't, I know she has said that she might've seen something she mm-hmm. shouldn't. And I know you like, you're sort of speculating loose ideas, but that's nothing to go on and come out and say, oh, they were definitely involved. You know, there was, there's no, there, I don't, there's I don't, no ha- I don't have yeah. words Yeah, Like yeah. there's not, there's no concrete evidence. There's right. not even a single thread to say, Ooh, like this is, let's put this together. And this is super suspicious. Like they really didn't even do anything suspicious. That's yeah. No. That's what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. I, I am having a hard time as well thinking that Shirley and Jason were involved based on what I know about them. Maybe Jeff Buziak knows them much better than we do. Like, who knows how much information Lindsay confided in them? It's basically her boyfriend and her manager. So, I mean, she she could have been afraid of them, but in a weird way, like we're all a little afraid of our managers. We don't want to disappoint (laughs) them. Right. Um, And and her boyfriend, like maybe Jason's just a passionate dude. Like, you know, maybe he runs really hot, like positive and negative. Like I. From what I read, I don't think that Jason was involved in the plot to kill Lindsay. I think he loved Lindsay maybe too much, mm-hmm. but I don't think he knew that this is what was going to happen to her. And I, I feel like he probably feels terrible knowing that he got there five minutes too oh, late. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's suspicious that, you know, he was just the right amount of time late, but 10 to 15 minutes. Like mm-hmm. I, I do firmly believe that the suspects that killed her were contract killers. Mm-hmm. I think they were professionals. I just can't figure out the motive which is why i don't think it was jason either right because i don't understand what the motive would be i don't think it was shirley because i don't understand what the motive would be i'm just i don't know I just and can't. jason also wasn't the right amount of time late because when he got there the guy was walking into the house and then they had oh. to sneak out while they were still outside true. so if jason true. was truly involved wouldn't he give them a big enough window for right. them to be out yeah. of the house by the time he got there unless yeah. that was just a plan to throw suspicion off of them but i wouldn't say that he got the timing right if he was involved can we talk about that again for a second when he arrived when jason arrived he saw a man mm-hmm. the back in of his the head in like the pathway in front of the house facing the door facing the front door yes the man was like i don't know if there was like a little breezeway or something but he was like right in front of the front door in the house or outside outside i don't even understand that I think that they were probably trying to leave out the front and they heard the car and like maybe they just kind of, you know, like turned a little bit. And I think once Jason did a loop around the cul-de-sac, they were like, nope, not going to go out the front door. Was the front door open or shut or we don't know? It was open when Jason saw it. And then the man locked it behind him when he went back inside. Weird. And of course, we have to believe what Jason said. Right, right. Right. Because he was there. And I. I, Well, Cohen, I would assume, backs that up. I'm I'm guessing he wouldn't. Yeah, from everything I saw, like, Cohen backs up Jason's story 100%. Cohen Oatman? Cohen Oats? No, that sounds wrong. (laughs) I just made a mistake. I'm sorry, Cohen Oatman. That is what you had for breakfast. That (laughs) is what I had for breakfast. Oh. Cohen Oats? Cohen Oats. I just can't wrap my head around. I can't wrap my head around it. Like at least with the Phoebe case, there were 
you could go down a path and have a reason and then something would break it. Mm-hmm. I can't even figure out, uh, I mean, I, I hear your theories and, and follow them, but I don't know. None of them sit right. I think she was the target. Yeah. I think somebody wanted to murder yeah. her. I think somebody was setting her up whether she did or didn't see something she shouldn't have or yeah. had some level of knowledge that like put her life in danger. I think she hung out with some questionable characters, right? We talked about it, but mm. like, who doesn't like a bad boy? We've been over this. <laughs> I do. And being friends with somebody isn't a crime just because you're friends with them doesn't mean that you participate right. in all the same activities, illegal or legal. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. So I, again, I'm having a hard time with motive, but I, I do feel like there are some things that make mm. sense and yeah. some degree of an organized hit was carried out on her. She definitely was the mm. target. Someone close to her set this up. And I do think that the knife was either because it was a populated area and they wanted mm. to keep things quiet or because some it was personal and mm. someone was like, yeah, I want you to mutilate her. Like, yeah, that's another piece. I'm curious how many like if it was mostly new construction, how many people there were around. And I don't know why that factors in for me, but it does. Noise, it, the yeah. Feeling, yeah, the feeling of that's it's all new construction nobody's there versus it's a semi-populated or mostly populated neighborhood have different feelings for me and i don't think that the suspects knew much about the area Mm. because there was at one point i read that the only thing other than calling Lindsay they did with the phone was they looked up the address on mapquest probably Mm. to i know back in the day to figure out like an escape route and just get a sense for the neighborhood Now, the house was listed at 965. Did you look up what it sold for after someone was murdered in it? So the house did eventually sell. It did sell on March 20th, 2009 for $762,000. Oh, man. That murder will really yeah. drop your property rate. Yep. I think that's considered an undesirable. Yeah. Yeah. And that, my dear friends, concludes the bizarre and heartbreaking story of Lindsay Buziak. Wow. Can you... S- can you stop doing unsolved yeah. cases? They're my favorite. I mean, I I've do done, them. I did one too, but they just make me so mad. <laughs> well, maybe this will help make you less mad. So gremlins, this is our kind of call to action to each of you. Let us know what you think about the case. And there was a ton more information that I didn't include in our episode because there's just not enough time in the world mm-hmm. to be able to do it. So I would highly encourage you to go and read lindsaybuziakmurder.com and just what are your thoughts based on what you heard here today? Let us know on our socials. And do it. it. <laughs> <laughs> if you are loving Grimm, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. For those of you who listen on Apple Podcasts, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a written review. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for case photos and to stay current on the latest episodes. Want to send us case suggestions or just say hey? Send us an email at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We hope you listen, learn, and stay alive until next time, because the future is grim.